Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, just the assembly. We thank you for the opportunity to assemble and sing your praise, to assemble and pray, to assemble and read your word, to uh, assemble and dream. But mostly, Lord, we are excited about the possibility of, of what happens when we're not assembled, uh, how, how we gather to glorify you and to grow and to recharge and connect and fellowship and worship and pray, and then we scatter to take the message of the gospel out to the world around us. Lord, may we remember, uh, would you help us to remember that while we gather here for this brief time every week, we are to be representatives of you in the world as we scatter. And, and I don't think it's by accident that you have put us out in the world for more time than, than you gather us. Um, and so we want to be good representatives of you, Lord. Would you, uh, would you help us to consider as a church and what we do gathered, how we can be the most healthy place to help and aid and assist families in, in being healthy and, and, and in raising kids in the next generation? And uh, Lord, would you use us as a, just in the gap of the difficulty of what's going on with families in the erosion of the family, which is not new, but, um, but we want to stand in the gap of, uh, of that, Lord. And uh, God, would you, uh, would you just help us to be bold and willing to step out of our comfort zones as, as you stepped out of the comfort zone of heaven and came to earth to, uh, to bear our sins. And as we're looking at Matthew and seeing all that you have done for us in that, Lord, may we be reminded constantly that you left all of the comforts to, uh, to come to earth and to, uh, to, to call us to yourself. And now you call us in the same fashion to go out and to represent you uh, in the world. Lord, may we be uh, bold and courageous in just having relationships with people. Lord, thank you for uh, just the church and the care and the concern that there is for one another here and for all that you um, are doing and have done for us, Lord. Um, Lord, as we look now to your word, we ask that you would give us open hearts or open minds to, to understand your word and soft hearts to be willing to obey it. Lord, may we just see how glorious you are as our holy God. Lord, we pray for Sandy and Sunaf Zigger today, and we just want to thank you for, uh, for the praise that, uh, that, that world events have opened doors for conversation. Lord, we thank you for their boldness in using the, the events in the world, whether it was when they were in Germany or back here in the U.S., to speak to people and to speak of your control and of the gospel. Lord, may we model that and do the same. May we see that, uh, that, that what's going on in the world is always a platform to talk about your goodness, your salvation, your mercy, your power, your sovereignty. Lord, we want to pray for them as they have expressed that, that it's difficult leaving uh, those who they care about in Germany and coming home. I'm sure they're glad to be back in the States and glad to be with family. But Lord, they, uh, they're sad to leave people behind, maybe people who they were ministering to you who don't know you, certainly those who were they, they were ministering to you who do. They know that those people are in your care ultimately, but we want to continue to pray with them that you would uh, care for those people and provide uh, opportunities for, uh, for worship and for, uh, for praise, but also for evangelism for them. Lord, we pray for the spiritual health of those who are still there, that they would continue to grow in their faith. And we pray the same for us, Lord. Give us a, a deep hunger to know you through your word, to pray to you and talk to you and to pray for one another and for the church. And uh, just do great things through us this morning, and we ask it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Follow along with me, please, as I read to you the remainder of Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. It says, Now when they had departed, that is, the wise men, when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he, took and, and he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. As I studied this passage, I was reminded of the difficulty of Scripture. I don't know if I'm the only one, but, uh, but, but if you find Scripture difficult to read sometimes and difficult to understand, you're not alone. And maybe especially when we get to the prophets. Like, I mean, I still have moments where I read the prophets and I'm like, what is that all about? What does that mean? And I certainly remember times early on in my Bible reading and study, uh, both education and just as a younger Christian, um, reading uh, the prophets and, and being like, I have no idea what any of this was about. If you find Scripture to be difficult to read, you're not alone. But one of the things we find in Scripture is a, this great gift from New Testament authors who show us wonderful things from the Old Testament. And here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew does just that. Now, we have to be very, very careful here because we don't have the freedom sometimes to interpret Scripture in the same ways that the biblical authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did. We can't just read everything and allegorize it and say, oh, this really means something else. But here... In Matthew, uh, in the remainder of Matthew chapter 2, we get this incredible link between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that, that we might not see otherwise. In fact, three times here in the last part of Matthew 2, we're going to see Matthew refer to the Old Testament. And that means that in just these two chapters, he has quoted for us from the Old Testament five times. I think this is really, really important. In, in, in verse 123, he quotes Isaiah 7.14. 
In 2.6, he quotes Micah 5.2. In 2.15, our passage today, he quotes Hosea 11.1. In Jeremiah 31, or he quotes Jeremiah 31.15 in verse 2.18. And then we get this really obscure reference to all of the prophets here in chapter 2, verse 23. And if you're looking at your outline and you see on the third point that there are question marks there, those are not accidental. We will talk about why? But Matthew is masterfully showing us the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between promises made by God and promises kept by God. It has been said that the New Testament is in the Old concealed, while the Old Testament is in the New revealed. Why is this so important? Why can't we just say, well, the Old Testament is hard to understand. We don't understand all those prophets. Jesus is here. Let's just move along. I think one of the big reasons for us is that we have to understand that Christianity, biblical Christianity, is not a novel faith. When we understand that the Old Covenant is not something separate from the New, that the Old Covenant represented by the Old Testament is God's promises made, and that the New Covenant uh, uh, spoken of in the Old but revealed in the New is God's promises kept, we find that biblical Christianity is the only faith that spans all of human history. Every other faith started sometime later, brand new, out of nothing, or ended. But there is a reason why biblical Christianity spans all of human history. And it's because it's true. It's because it is God who has preserved it, kept it, who has made promises and kept promises And Matthew does a great job of showing that here. We also see in these opening uh, chapters how uh, Matthew handles prophecy. In Micah 5.2, which is in verse 2.6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. We get this very precise prediction about Jesus, this very straight line. The wise men show up. Herod wants to know where the child is to be born. They look at Micah 5.2 with the addition of 2 Samuel 5.2 and they can pinpoint he will be born in Bethlehem and that's where they go. It's this very precise prediction. He's showing us uh, but, but in uh, Isaiah 7.14, which is in verse 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. As we talked about when I preached that passage, there is both a, a fulfillment in the time of Isaiah, and then by the time we get to the end of the book of Isaiah, they're still waiting for this promised child even though a child had already come, and so we're still looking for another. And so in Isaiah 7, there is this now and not yet fulfillment. There is a a sense in which it was fulfilled now in Isaiah's time, and, and a sense which it had not yet been fulfilled until Christ. But now, we see here at the end of the book of Matthew, uh, what, what we call um, typology, 
What is typology? Well, it's, here Matthew is showing us how certain parts of Israel's story give us glimpses of Christ. They give us glimpses of Jesus and who uh, he would be. Examples of this would be uh, from the book of Hebrews. The law, and Galatians by the way, the law shows us that we're lawbreakers. You want to, if you have young children, you know, and I've asked this question before, and everybody raised their hands, how many times have you broken a rule just because somebody gave it? Don't touch that. Right? I mean, we do this. We do this. And Galatians is clear that God gave us the law so that trespass might increase. Why would God want our disobedience to increase so that the law could be, as Galatians tells us, a tutor that leads us to Christ? The law was given to show us we're lawbreakers. Sacrifices were given to show us that something had to die because of our sin. And the repeated nature of the sacrifices showed us that it couldn't be something as simple as an animal. High priests had to sacrifice for themselves, and they died, and they had to sacrifice over and over. The priesthood wasn't enough. And so we see these, uh, that, that oftentimes what God gave us in the old covenant leads us to something in the new. It shows us a type of something we need to know later. And here Matthew connects for us how Israel's history shows us Jesus and how far superior he is to anything that came before him. In order to understand this in the text today, we have to understand Israel's history. And just in case you don't, I'm going to give you a quick recap. And we're going to move very, very, very fast. So uh, we're going to try and keep this as simple as possible. God came to a man named Abraham and said, who had no children, he said, I'm going to give you a son, and from that son is going to come a nation. And God gave him that son. He gave he and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, a son named Isaac. And God reiterated his promises, these promises made in that old covenant with Abraham. He reiterated that promise to his son Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob, whom God changed his name to Israel. He had 13 sons, or 12 sons, and Joseph had two sons. The math is interesting as you consider the 12 tribes, but, uh, but, but he had these sons, and they didn't like their youngest brother, Joseph, at the time their youngest brother, who they sold into slavery. And God took Joseph from what we call today Israel into Egypt, and, and God moved him into a position of great power. In fact, he was uh, immediately under uh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh was, had given everything into Joseph's control. And Joseph, uh, through God's intervention, um, saved not only that nation, but most of the world through a test of severe famine. But in that famine, God moved the whole family Jacob or Israel and his sons and Joseph into the land of Egypt. Over time, Joseph was forgotten and the people were enslaved. And 400 years later, God raises up this man named Moses 
to, to lead his people out of the land of Egypt. And through great miracles, God brings them out of Egypt and into the desert. And immediately, the people begin to complain. Oh, we were so much happier in captivity and slavery in Egypt. We do this, right? When we're in slavery, we say, oh, I want out. And then when we're out, we say, oh, I want to go back. And they complain against God and against Moses. And God leaves them to wander in the desert for 40 years until he brings them into the promised land. Over time, they demanded a king, and God gave them a king and a kingdom. And under the third of Israel's kings, the kingdom was divided into Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And there is, under these divided kingdoms, 21 kings, I think. Don't hold me to that, but I I, think. I seem to recall that there's 21 kings per kingdom. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, there is not a single king who follows the Lord. And in Judah, there is only seven of 21 who do. And the people worship idols, and they reject God, and they sacrifice their children, and the situation is bad. And God says that he is going to send them into captivity. The northern kingdom of Israel is hauled into captivity, is is defeated and captured and taken captive by Assyria. And a couple hundred years later, the southern kingdom of Judah is taken into captivity by Babylon. And now this nation, several hundred years before Christ, is captive. It is subjugated to, to... First Assyria, and then Babylon, and then that moves to Greece, and then, well actually it moves from Babylon to Persia, to Greece, to Rome. But for hundreds of years, for hundreds of years, this nation has not been free. And as we encounter Matthew chapter 2, they are still under this captivity, awaiting their king. And that's going to be important as it, all of those details are going to be important as we understand the text today. We'll get to how in a minute. But as we look at the text today, I want us to see three fulfillments of prophecy that show us Jesus' majesty. Three fulfillments of prophecy that throw a, show us Jesus' majesty. And we're going to see this first in the flight to Egypt. The flight to Egypt, verses 13 through 15. Matthew gives us very few details about any of these stories. In fact, he's the only one who records any of this. Very few details are given about Jesus' childhood, but we see some here. So let's look at these verses. It says, Now when they had departed, that is the wise men who had come from the east to see Jesus and to give him gifts, behold, and and by the way, the language here in the Greek indicates almost immediately, they departed and this happened very fast. When they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And so Joseph does. He does so, he obeys quickly. But notice what is told them. And remain there until I tell you. Go to Egypt, stay there until I tell you otherwise. Now, if an angel shows up to you tonight and says, Go to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. Maybe one of the first things that's going to come into our mind is, how do I afford that? Three ways. 
gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They have the wealth needed to be able to make this journey. For, here's why, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, that is Joseph, rose and took his child, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And we get this quote from Hosea 11.1. Now, I think there's a few details we have to understand here. Why Egypt? Uh, Well, first off, to fulfill prophecy, and we'll discuss that in a minute. But Egypt would have been a logical place. In fact, just 40 years later from these events, Philo, a historian, a Jewish historian who wrote from Egypt, records that there were in various areas of Egypt over a million Jews who were already there who had either fled there or for various reasons uh, ended up there. And so it's a logical place. There's lots of Jews there. And the second point I would make about this is anybody in that day, as we've already talked about, would not understand this to be strange from Herod. He executed his favorite wife and many of his children simply because he thought they would be a threat to the throne. And this idea that there is a child, a natural-born, Herod is not a natural-born king, he is appointed by Rome, who is ruling as Israel is in captivity at that point. This natural-born king is a threat to, to, uh, to him. And so all of this very much makes sense. And we see that Joseph remains there until Herod dies and the angel tells him to go back and, and that this was, as Matthew tells us, to fulfill what was spoken of in Hosea 11.1. 1. This is an interesting passage because when you go to Hosea 11.1, 1, it is not one of those straight line prophecies. It is not in its context clearly about the Messiah. In fact, if you just read it in its context, it doesn't appear to be about Jesus at all. It's about Israel. And God refers to Israel there in Hosea 11.1 as his son. But, but Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see that this points us to Jesus. Specifically, I think what he wants to show us is that Jesus is everything we're not. Both Jesus and Israel as a nation, both referred to as sons, come up out of Egypt and into the promised land. But Israel complained and whined and worshipped idols and disobeyed. And what they failed to do in 40 years in the wilderness, we're about to see in the future of Matthew, that Jesus successfully does without whining or complaint in 40 days in the desert. Everywhere that they failed, he succeeded. They disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. Israel, and really, you and I are the son with whom God is displeased. But in the very next chapter, just 17 verses in, we're going to hear God say, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so we begin here to see this great contrast between this majestic and glorious and holy and perfect Jesus in contrast to Israel and to us. While they were great failures, 
Israel came out of Egypt as God's chosen nation. And while he was in a complete success, Jesus comes out of Egypt as the chosen Messiah. But I think there's more going on here. Hosea didn't predict Jesus' flight to Egypt. Hosea, in its context, pictures something else for us. If you don't know the book of Hosea, you should read it. It's really interesting. God comes to, the, to, to Hosea and he says, go and marry a wife of harlotry. He says, go marry a prostitute. Strange commands. And unfortunate for Hosea. Because the woman he marries, her name is Gomer. She does not remain faithful to Hosea. But she goes back to her prostitution. And God says, go get her. And he has to purchase her. And love her. And then, his love for her, really in the book of Hosea, changes her. And then God says, now that all that's happened... I want you to go to the nation of Israel and I want you to tell them that they are a nation of prostitutes who are prostituting themselves out to other gods, to idols, to other affections, to other loves. But I keep pursuing them, keep drawing them back, keep buying them back. Hosea is a picture to us of God's love despite... Israel's unfaithfulness, despite Israel's affection for other things. And so just as, to, uh, just as Hosea was to love Gomer despite her misplaced affections, so God loved Israel despite its misplaced affections, and so he loves us. Hosea was to love his prostitute wife, and Israel was the prostitute nation, and this is how God loves us. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I think what, Hosea, what Matthew is doing by drawing Hosea in here is to not only show us that, that Jesus is the glorious and perfect Savior in contrast to Israel and you and I, but I think what he is doing is showing us that, in, that, that Jesus is the nexus of God's love for us. It is the center of God's love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While our affections were placed elsewhere, Christ died for us. Secondly, we see the glory of Christ in the slaughter of children. In the slaughter of children. Again, here Matthew gives very, very few details, but let's look at this text again. Then Herod... When he saw that he had been tricked, if you have an NIV, I think you get a different word there. That's unfortunate. This is not that um, uh, Herod believes himself to have been tricked by the wise men, is the reality. 
He thinks they're tricking them. Ironically, what we know is that it wasn't the wise men who tricked them, but God who sent them a different way. And so Herod is not being played by the wise men. Herod is being played by God who is sovereignly in control of these events. But when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, very characteristic of Herod. And he sent and killed all. By the way, when it says he became furious here, in the Greek, this is a passive voiced verb. It means it's something happening to him, not something he's doing. It's not the idea that he was so angry that he chose to do something, but that he was so consumed and controlled by his anger, he is acting without any intellect here. I mean, it's just pure rage. This is not to say he's not accountable for his actions, but this is pure rage from Herod. He became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, probably less than 12 children, according to the time that that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 31, 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew's interest here is less with Herod and more with Jeremiah. He's really trying to draw our attention to Jeremiah. But once again, context is going to be the king in understanding Matthew's uh, uh, or use of Jeremiah because, because the, the Messiah is not the immediate context of Jeremiah 31 either. In fact, the immediate context of Jeremiah 31 is the exile of Babylon. Remember, the northern kingdom had been taken captive by Assyria. Then Babylon came in and took the southern kingdom captivity into captivity. And that's when Jeremiah is writing. And chapter 31 is all about that. It's all about how God is going to discipline his people for their unfaithfulness by sending them into exile. And if you read Jeremiah 31, you'll find verse 1 reminds us that though they will be exiled, God will still be their God. Verse 2 reminds them, much like Hosea, that that his love for them, even though they will be disciplined, is an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.3 promises that he will once again build them up as a people. Uh, Verses 4-13 through of Jeremiah 31 are primarily about their joy that God will give them when he brings them out of captivity and returns them into the land. And it is this very joyful book. Yes, you're going to go into captivity. Yes, you're being disciplined, but God loves you. He is still your God. He will restore you and rebuild you and return you and raise up your joy. And then verse 15 interrupts this joyous chapter with tears about this voice being heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And there's this this sudden interruption to this joy with slaughter. And then immediately after verse 15, in verses 16 and 17, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, commands them to stop weeping. 
Now, what in the world could cause a mother to stop weeping for her her slaughtered children? And the answer in verses 16 and 17 is hope. There is hope. Because listen to how Jeremiah rounds out this account in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. It is the promise of what we are seeing in Jesus Jeremiah says, stop weeping in verses 16 and 17. And then verse 31 says, behold, the days are are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Can you hear the language of Hosea in this? I was their husband, and they broke their covenant. They gave their affection to someone else. But this new covenant is not going to be like that one, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the last of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And Matthew is pointing us to the fact that despite the fact that these children have died, Jesus is here. The Messiah is here. And he didn't die with them. He escaped this slaughter. And while it is tragic that these children died, and I, doubt, I have no doubt in my mind that they will be in heaven with us someday, the reality is that they died because the Messiah has come. And he was not slaughtered with them. He escaped. And he will live to die another day. Though we all deserve death, that we all deserve to be slaughtered for our sins. The one who loves us and gave himself up for us, as Romans 5 tells us, is here. But again, there is something more. The exile into Assyria and Babylon was the end of the Davidic dynasty. A king had not sat on the throne of Israel for hundreds of years. The end of the book of Kings in, in uh, the Old Testament, is the end of the line of David. And God promised that the Messiah, the one to save them and us, not only as a nation but from our sin, would come from that line. No king, no Messiah. And here, in Jesus, we see the king. We see a king whom Herod is trying to kill. We see a king who is still yet a baby, but a king nonetheless. Maybe there's something in your family, as we speak of families, that is causing this kind of grief, this kind of mourning, this kind of lamentation, the loss of a child, the sin of a child, the loss of a spouse, or the sin of a spouse. Let me remind you of this child. Let me remind you that the King has come. Let me remind you that he has come to seek and save the lost. That he came to bring those exiled in sin to freedom in him. And that he has come to be king and he reigns from on high. Therefore, let none despair. You can stop 
your weeping because there is hope. The King has come and the King has died and the King has risen again and He lives and He reigns. And thirdly, we see the glory and majesty of Jesus in the return to Nazareth. And this one is a problem. But when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of, Egypt, or of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And so Joseph once again obeys, packs up Jesus and, and Mary, and heads back to where he was coming from. Now, if you remember, if you recall all the way from when we started this out, they traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the census. Then when the wise men find them, they have a house. They had relocated there, but now they've gone to Egypt. I think they were intending to go back to Bethlehem. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, this is one of Herod's sons, uh, was reigning over Judea in, in place of his father Herod, and he was, he was a bad dude also, uh, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream... He withdrew to the district of Galilee, that's north in Israel, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets, notice the plural there, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. The reason this is difficult for us is there is no Old Testament verse that says this. There's nothing in the Old Testament, no verse we can point to, hence the question marks on your outline where we can say this is the quote. But there are some clues, I think particularly in the Greek, that we we don't see. First is the use of the plural. Notice that Matthew does not say, as the prophet Jeremiah or the prophet Hosea spoke. He doesn't name a prophet here. And he doesn't use a singular as though it was one prophet. He uses the plural prophets. And in every other instance, he uses what we have a hard time seeing in English, this verb saying, and it goes away. It's prophets, not a prophet. And the prophets aren't saying this in the same way as the other prophets were. So what in the world is Matthew doing here? Well, I don't think he's trying to indicate for us that he's quoting a verse. And I think that's very, very clear as you study this in the Greek. I think he's trying to say, follow the logic here, that the prophets predicted that Jesus would be despised. That's what it means to be a Nazarene. It is to be despised. And many of the prophets speak of the fact that Jesus would be one who was despised and rejected. Maybe the most obvious and well-known would be Isaiah 53, that he would be despised and rejected of men. He wouldn't be known as Jesus of Bethlehem, Jesus of the city of kings. He would be known as Jesus of Nazareth. And if you recall how Nathanael responded when he was told by Philip that we found the Messiah, whom he called Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What is Nathanael's response? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. 
And I think what Matthew is drawing us to is that all of the prophets showed us over and over that those who should have received him as their king rejected him. He was despised. And he is despised. He is despised still today. As we think about going out there and meeting with people and practicing hospitality and the power of one and and sometimes we'll tell people about Jesus and they may despise him and they may despise us, we should not be caught off guard because he's a Nazarene. Nothing, Nothing good can come from Nazareth. The term Christian was a mocking term. The predecessor to the term Baptist, Anabaptist, was a mocking term. God's people have always been rejected on some level. But does it really matter? If we're accepted in heaven, if we're accepted in God's economy, if we're accepted in his kingdom, he is still despised today, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. So what do we do? First, take heart when people do despise him. Take heart when you share your faith. If you want to be discouraged, don't be discouraged when somebody rejects you or Christ for sharing the gospel. Be discouraged when we fail to share the gospel. When we don't give people the opportunity to either despise him or love him. Because he is a pursuing God. I hate the word relentless, but man, there's a lot of truth in the, in the song about God's relentless love, or reckless love, I mean. Reckless means foolhardy, and God was not stupid. But man, he is a pursuing God, and he pursues rejectors of him. I bet if we heard everybody's testimony in this room, there would be many of us who spent years rejecting him, despising him. Everybody rejects him and despises him until they don't. So don't be discouraged when people do. Don't be discouraged in your evangelism. Our first takeaway from this is take heart when people despise him. God told us it would be this way. Second, people always despise him until they don't. So don't be discouraged in your evangelism. And third, and maybe the biggest question here before you today is what is your disposition towards him? Do you despise him? Kings despised him. Herod despised him. The intellectual elites at universities despise him. If you want to see reason why that should encourage you, read 1 Corinthians. We were told it would be that way. God chooses the foolish things of the world uh, to, to, to shame the wise. So if you're here today and you believe in Christ, God didn't pick you because you're the greatest or the smartest or the best. He picked you and me to shame those who are. He picked picked people like me to stand in a pulpit and preach his word so that the only explanation can be, only God can do that. Many despise him. But why should you? He's the king. He's perfect in righteousness. He loves us and gave himself up for us. He gave himself up to be despised and rejected, even killed 
so that we might live. He loves us perfectly. But don't despise him today. Heavenly Father, may our hearts be hearts of great affection for you. Thank you that in this passage, we get to see the glory of your love for us. We get to see the glory of your salvation that overcomes all weeping. And we get to see that you were despised and rejected of men and kings so that we might be welcomed and accepted by you. May we not fear the spite or the rejection of people knowing that you have welcomed us and accepted us perfectly into your kingdom because of Christ, because of his perfection, because of his obedience, because of his success where we have failed in every way, and yet he still died in our place, stood condemned before you, rejected by men, but vindicated by you in his resurrection and the salvation of those who would place their trust in him. May that knowledge, may that acceptance, may that love, may that welcoming into your kingdom be so sure and steadfast in us that the, 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 the spite and rejection of people means nothing. May we not be concerned when people reject us or you, but may we simply be concerned when we fail to speak of you to represent you, to give people the opportunity to despise or reject you. May we not be discouraged when they do, but continue faithfully in our evangelism, knowing that everybody despises you until they don't. Lord, use us to reach 505. Parents, grandparents, children, siblings, lonely Whatever the case may be, Lord, use us to reach people for your kingdom and draw them into your family through us for your glory in Jesus' name.